If you have your Bibles, we're going to be in John chapter 14, uh, the first 14 verses. I read those for us, and then I will pray for us. John 14, uh, 1 through 14, and I'm reading from the CSB. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I am going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to where I am going. And of course, in fashion of most of the disciples, Thomas asked, or Thomas says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you know me, you will also know my Father. From now on, from now on you do know him and have seen him. Lord, said Philip, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been among you all this time, and you do not know me, Philip? The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak of my own. For the Father who lives in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe uh, because of the works themselves. Truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do, and he will do even greater works than these, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that my Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name... I will do it. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do uh, what I never have the capacity to do, which is to help these words come alive. God, open our eyes, open our minds, open our ears to hear uh, what you may have for us today. And Holy Spirit, that you would enliven us. Uh, and help me to be good, to get out of the way that people would see Jesus and be transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, you know, this particular passage uh, was a challenge for me. Uh, it's not the first time I read it. It's not the first time I preach it. Uh, but it was particularly challenging because I felt as though God was challenging me to see it just a little differently. Uh, this is a, a well-worn passage, at least it has been to me. Uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life is something that we often uh, preach or read or study. Uh, but this time around, it felt as though God was showing me just a slightly different dimension to understand what God may be saying. I think that this moment between Jesus and his disciples offer us a few things. Uh, I think they offer us hospitality, I think they offer us freedom, and I think that they offer us power. And hopefully I can get through all three of those things today. But let's talk about the first one. This moment uh, between Jesus and his disciples offer us hospitality. You know, it's interesting, uh, 
what we've read today is part of a larger discourse uh, in the Bible, a larger discourse between Jesus uh, and his friends. It's a discourse where Jesus washes the feet of his disciples, where he shares an analogy about uh, vines and branches, where he talks about Peter's denial and where he introduces the reality of the Holy Spirit. If you look at chapter 13, verse 31, and you look at chapter 18, uh, the first verse, you realize that throughout that entire span, Jesus talks about all those different things. And Jesus seems to be offering these words, um, and he offers them between two pretty significant moments in Jesus' ministry, two very significant events in Jesus' life. The Last Supper... And the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. These words with his friends happen between those two significant moments. It happens between the city of Jerusalem and the Kidron Valley, which is about four miles northeast of Jerusalem. So not only does it happen between specific times, but it happens between significant, specific places. But I think it's interesting that While Jesus offers these words, there is no clear time or clear place where these words are delivered and how they're delivered. What's the time frame? This is very different from his other major discourse with his friends and his followers, the Sermon on the Mount, if you know that. Where Jesus delivers those words and that sermon, those sayings, at the foot of a mountain. In fact, Luke calls it a level place. It's clear where Jesus delivers that discourse, but it's unclear where the place and time of this discourse. We may have some markers of where the time frame it happened, but it isn't clear exactly where and at what time this place happens. I guess you can say it's as if the conversation of Vines and branches and this moment where he talks about uh, making a place, preparing a place for his disciples happens here and there. It happens here and there. It happens with Jesus as someone rooted in his present reality, a reality that has his impending death right front center. But it also happens as Jesus as someone who is no longer part of this reality. Jesus, in a sense, is already thinking about how he will depart from this reality. So this moment that we're reading, this little historical footnote of it happening between Jerusalem and the Kidron Valley, between the Last Supper and his prayer at Gethsemane, between these two massive places and these massive moments, that kind of uncertainty, that lack of clarity, I think helps us to understand the idea of what place he is preparing for us. Now, historically, when I've read this passage of Jesus preparing a place for us, it has been encouraged that I see that as something that God is preparing for us in the future, that this is a picture of God's kingdom fully established. And rightfully so, we should understand the first few verses when Jesus encourages them not to be afraid because he is preparing a place for them to see that and understand that in the dimension of what is coming. 
of something that we can hope for in the future. But part of the approach I want to take today is to understand that not only as something that we should see moving forward or anticipating for the future, but a reality that God is inviting us to step into the present. That I believe that this small historical footnote has some influence on the way that we understand the place that Jesus is preparing for us in verse 2. When Jesus talks about preparing a place, I believe that he's talking about both something to look forward to and something to step into. Look at verse 10. I think verse 10 helps to frame this out a bit for us. Verse 10 says, don't, don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak to you, I do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. That phrase is so profound to me. It caught my attention immediately this time around. The Father who lives in me. And I think this kind of helps us to frame this idea that the place Jesus is preparing for is not merely something that we should think of as something that's coming in the future, but as a very present reality that we can step into. A place that we can walk into, not just wait for. The Father who lives in me. It's as if to say that the Father occupies space in and with Jesus. I said this in the first service. I think we would make a grave mistake to assume that when Jesus uses this language of the Father living in him and doing his works through him, it would be a grave mistake to assume that when he uses that language, he intends to communicate the loss of agency and control. That the Father, as if the Father doing his work through Jesus means that Jesus suspends any thoughts or desires that are distinct from the Father. Now, let me be very careful when I say this. Right, that I think that Jesus, we can admit that Jesus had distinct desires from the Father. And I think the Garden of Gethsemane is the prime example. Where his desire was that God would pass the cup from him. Though simultaneously praying that the Father's will be done. But I think it would be a grave mistake of us to assume that when he uses the language, the Father who lives in me does his work through me, that it's as if Jesus is saying, well, I suspend any of my own agency here. Instead, I think that we should see this not as suspension language or loss of control language, but rather that we should see this as relational or formational language. That when Jesus says, the Father who lives in me does his work through me, this is the kind of language that we use to describe someone's deep influence over our lives. Like a parent, or an abuela, grandparent, or like a close friend, or a mentor. This is the language we use to describe the way someone's life, uh, someone lives in us, by way of the decisions that we make and the things that we love and value because the deep impact that relationship has had on us. 
When Jesus says here, the father who lives in me does his work through me, he's not suspending agency, but rather he's highlighting influence. He's highlighting the deep impact the father has had on him. And I think we can all agree that this is true not only of our healthy influences, but also of our unhealthy influences. All right, that's exactly right. Absolutely, I agree. Right, think about the way that you do conflict. Think about the way that you manage money. Money is a tricky thing, I know. Think about the way that you uh, think about sexuality. You know, I had a mentor tell me one time uh, that Jesus may have saved your soul, but grandpa still lives in your bones. And that the journey of discipleship is learning how to let Jesus influence the way that we live. Because there are some influences that have led us to live unhealthy lives, make unhealthy decisions. But this is precisely what Jesus is alluding to when he says, the father who lives in me. He's highlighting impact, relational impact. He's highlighting influence over his life, not the loss of agency. Because look, when you lose agency, you lose love. When you lose agency, you lose love. And part of Jesus' goal here is to introduce to us an, an ethic of love. This has been the invitation of Jesus from the moment he stepped into the lives of his disciples. He is inviting them to a relationship of consequence. He's inviting them into a relationship of consequence. The people who are proximate enough to you that influence you. That shape the way you think because you've created a space inviting and welcoming enough to consider their perspective and their lived experiences. That you no longer can see the world only through your eyes, but you see them also through the eyes and the lived experiences of those that you've invited into your space. Jesus is saying, this is what I've offered the disciples from the moment I stepped into their lives. A relationship that actually transforms them. A relationship of consequence. A relationship that in some ways operates like a space. Let me explain. I've said this before here. Uh, our family lived in New York City. I was born and raised in New York. Our kids were uh, in part raised in New York before we moved here in 2020. Uh, but we lived in a 700 square foot apartment that had two walls that created three rooms. Two bedrooms and one common area that had our kitchen, dining room, and living room. All in 700 square feet. We didn't really bat an eye. That's just the way life in New York is. That was just life. So now that I've doubled that here in Atlanta, uh, I'm very grateful. <laughs> but we had two bedrooms and one common area. Which meant that if I ever wanted to engage in anything that required silence or solitude, and, and when I mean solitude, I mean just sanity, right? I knew that I was going to have to do that in one of the two bedrooms. And more than often, it wasn't going to be in the kid's bedroom. It was going to be in my bedroom. And more than often, it was going to be in the bathroom, right? 
And if I wanted to engage in anything that, uh, that, that required me to be silent and think and gather myself, it was going to be impossible to do that in the common space. Why? Because that's where the chicken was frying. That's where the cabinets were being opened and closed. That's where we sat on the couch in conversation with our friends. No more than two because then it got crowded, right? That's where we watched TV and watched the game. That's where we ran around. That's where we played music. That's where we danced. So I knew that if I wanted moments of silence and solitude, it couldn't happen in the common area. What do I mean to say with all of this? That 700-square-foot apartment invited us to be creative, patient, and efficient. It's almost as if the space shaped so much of the way that we lived our lives. In a sense, we took the shape of that 700-square-foot apartment that we occupied. It, it, in some ways, it dictated, and not in an oppressive way, but in a creative Thoughtful, patient way. This is what we've got. How can we live fruitful lives amongst this, amongst this space with each other? We learned how to respect each other's space. At least we tried, right? That's what made pandemic so difficult because now so much was happening in this one space that we hadn't factored in. I think this is the way relationship with Jesus is meant to work. I think this is the way relationship works. That relationship is almost like this space that we occupy with someone else. And when we come into that space as our full selves, all of us, we, we, we bump into each other. But we learn how to, or at least we should learn how to live with one another. How to occupy this space with one another. And the same is true of Jesus. So that when Jesus says to his disciples who are overly concerned about the fact that he just said to them that I'm leaving, when he says to them, I'm preparing a place for you. When he says, I am the way to this place. When he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, he's saying that relationship with him operates like space does. A space unlike my 700 square foot apartment, but a space that is big and spacious. A space that's forgiving and gracious and that leaves room. In fact, it makes room for every part of us to show up because it's a place prepared by Jesus. Gosh, I can't tell you how challenging this was for me as I started to really ask questions in my own times of reflection like I, I've, I've never been I've never been invited to see these words in in John 14 this way I've always thought about it as something that's coming in the future I am preparing a place for you but the implications are so grave because if I only understand this place that God is preparing for me only, key word only, if I exclusively understand that th this place that Jesus is pre preparing for me only as something that's coming in the future, then I don't feel very motivated or eager to embody who God is here and now. It's what often leads me to only say, well, I'll pray for the injustices happening around me 
rather than to embody justice in the face of injustice around me. This dimension that it, it exists both in the future but also in the present is so important. And again, I think that little historical footnote kind of motivates this. That this little moment between Jesus and his disciples, it's unclear where it happens. It could have happened here. It could have happened there. Almost as if to give us a clue as to how to understand this place that he is preparing for us. It's almost as if Jesus is saying when he says, I'm preparing a place. When he says, I am the way uh, to, to this place. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, it's almost as if he's saying, I want to bring you into a place where, you can, uh, where what you know about me can become what you experience with me. He's inviting us into a, a space where we can measure love. Because if we can measure love as something that we can experience now, then we can embody love now. And not merely wait for perfect love in the future. A few weeks ago, my wife and I went out to breakfast. And uh, she told me something that she often tells me, which is that she loves me. But what she did that morning that I really needed to hear was why and how she loved me. Right? She would go on to list the reasons how her life has changed since being in relationship with me, you know, because I'm fantastic. No, I'm just stopped. No, 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 that's not the point. The, the, the point is that she goes on to list uh, all the ways that my relationship with her has impacted me. She's, she's, she told me how she has changed, how she's grown, how she's been challenged. And she would go on to make this list of the ways that I was so valuable to her. And I got to tell you, that meant so much to me. It almost meant more to me than her telling me that she loves me, which is why for like three minutes I protested and said, I'm never going to say I love you again. Instead, I'm going to tell you how valuable you are to me because I feel that means more. And then I, you know, came to my senses. I realized I need to say I love you also, <laughs> right? But it's because we love everything. I love NBA playoffs. Man, I love it, Right? My daughter loves volleyball. My son loves basketball, right? We love everything. And it almost didn't feel special to me to tell my wife I love you without explaining to her how valuable she is to me, how she has shaped me, how she has formed me, how she has changed me, how she has uh, 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 sh shifted the way that I see the world. And part of what Jesus is offering us here is this space. This feels like radical hospitality that goes beyond simply opening the doors to your home, but opening up something unique, a relational door to God and Jesus. This feels like hospitality through the roof. And he's inviting us to it when he says, I am the way. He's inviting us to it when he says, the father who lives in me. He's inviting us into it when he says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because relationship of consequence changes you. But not only does this moment offer us hospitality, it also offers us freedom. 
So much of this invitation is predicated on obedience. In other words, we can't experience the depth of this love that Jesus is offering us unless we are open and willing to step into it, however reluctant we feel. And it's nearly impossible to talk about obedience without talking about trust, isn't it? I consider how he opens this little moment, right? Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Troubled. Believe in me. Uh, believe in God. Excuse me. Believe also in me. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Clearly telling us how worried and disoriented and fearful the disciples were upon hearing that Jesus was going to leave them. Very disorienting. I gave up everything to follow you for three years. I heard you. I performed miracles in your name. I saw you do unbelievable things. I gave my life to you for the last three years. I've been committed to you. Now you're saying that you're leaving. I think I kind of knew that, but now we're here and it's disorienting. And he tells them, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. These disciples were disoriented and understandably so. Some of them were only moments away from betraying Jesus and denying friendship with him. Judas and Peter respectively. Just moments away from doing it. In fact, just moments before this, Jesus watches chapter 13. You read it on your own time. Jesus washed the feet of each disciple, including Judas. Which means that Jesus knowingly washes the feet of the one disciple who uses his proximity to Jesus to hurt Jesus. Did y'all catch that? Jesus knowingly washes the feet of the one disciple who uses his proximity to Jesus to hurt Jesus. Not to mention... That this ethic of love that Jesus is introducing, that Jesus is embodying and in some ways manifesting into this world, this ethic of love that Jesus is bringing to the world, one that's centered around service and sacrifice, this love is about to put him on a cross. And church, there lies in the biggest challenge that I had with this passage. This ethic of love that Jesus is inviting us to experience but also embody is unbelievably difficult. (laughs) These, Jesus is introducing this ethic of love and to those who are unfamiliar to it, hate him. And to those who are familiar with it, betray him. Church. This is what I call the occupational hazards of love. To fall prey to the hatred of those who don't know this love and to fall prey to the betrayal of those who do. And this is why I will forever say that the most difficult and blinding decision that we can make is the decision to love. It is incredibly risky to love. Think about your relationships. I mean, I know this to be true in marriage. 
how much I keep close certain parts of me out of fear that if I share it, right, out of fear that if I share it, the person that I love will see me as unlovable because of this thing that I think makes me unlovable. And you know what's scary? They could. They could agree with me and say, yeah, I think this makes you unlovable and leave. But you don't get genuine love without showing up fully as yourself. Because the risk is that you teach others to love only a version of you. And not the true version of you. Look, I don't mean to complicate this. I think all that I mean to say is that trust and obedience is hard. Trust and obedience is hard when you've lived through some hurt and hardship, whether that hardship is the result of unhealthy decisions that you have made or unhealthy decisions that others have made that have impact on you. Trust and obedience is hard. I have a hard time trusting because the last time I did, I was hurt. I get it. My pain and my harsh experiences and my sin Keep me from feeling free enough to trust and obey God's word. The occupational hazards of love feel too costly. And it often keeps us from obedience. This reminds me of Israel's wavering disobedience in the Old Testament. Israel struggled to obey God's law because part, uh, in part they struggled to see the meaning of God's law. And it was often the case that Israel struggled with God's laws because they felt that God's laws were either unfair, restrictive, or ineffective. Ineffective to get them to the place that they thought they should be in. Not the place that, not ineffective to where God wanted to take them. And you know, I'll tell you, there's probably no season, this is the way that I've experienced, there's no season in parenting where this is more true than parenting teens. Uh, I love my son. I'm very, very vocal and open about that uh, for many reasons, right? You know, to help reimagine a new relationship, emotional relationship between fathers and sons. I come from a culture where machismo is a very big deal, where men find it a weakness to be emotional or to be emotionally vulnerable. Um, I love my son very much. Um, and as a teen, I've learned uh, parenting one, not being one. Because when I was a teenager, I thought I was right all the time. Uh, but parenting one, I've realized that uh, more than often, teens want to know why. Why a certain rule or law or boundary is in place. Teenagers are often looking for meaning and purpose more than any other group, it, it seems. Um, and things don't always have to make sense for teens. They just have to have purpose, right, to some degree. But I realized that one of the ways that I have failed in my Establishing boundaries and guides and rules and laws in my home is not collaborating with my teen. You know that passage in Psalm 16 where it says that boundaries, uh, your boundaries have fallen in pleasant places for me. Well, boundaries don't feel uh, very pleasant oftentimes when there is uh, very little collaboration with the ones establishing the boundaries and those living within them. 
And I think part of the opportunity that I have as a parent is to have more conversation with my son about why these boundaries are set in place. Often because if that conversation is not happening, then my son will see them as oppressive and restrictive and ineffective when really all I want to do is establish relationship. Because my desire is for my son to become a kind of person and boundaries and guides help them toward that. I think this is particularly true of Israel when they left Egypt. Many of them only knew slavery. In fact, many of them were born into slavery. And here is God using Moses to free them from Egypt and from the bondage of Egypt. And takes them through the wilderness and then drops them in the promised land. And now they're expected to live Freely, outside of the bondage of their slave masters. You see, because when we are a slave to something, when we're held bondage by something, we really only know two things. One, what we fear. And two, what what we fear wants us to do. That what dictates the way that we live our lives are our fear. And here is Israel now invited to live as free people, but all they knew was slavery. They were unfamiliar to freedom. They may have been rescued by Moses, but they did not know how to live as free people. So what does God do? He gives them laws. He gives them laws not as a way to hold them in bondage or oppression, but as a way to shape and mold them into the free people that he promised that they would be. Israel was unfamiliar with freedom and God's laws were there to shape them into free people. Obedience is difficult because trust is hard. But the good news is that Jesus is the most free person. And he carves a way for us and our freedom. I love the way Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 and 20 puts it. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. Here's the key. He has inaugurated or introduced For us, a new and living way through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Jesus has introduced to us a new way of living. And here's a last thought. I'll give a few thoughts around this and we'll close. Not only does this space offer us hospitality, not only does it offer us freedom in radical ways, but it also offers us power power to embody the character of God. In verse 12 of our passage, we read, verses 12 through 14, we read how Jesus says that you will do greater things. I've always found that passage to be so wild. That we will do greater things than these. Greater things than resurrecting the dead. Greater things than healing the blind. Greater things than healing the mute, the lame. That we will do greater things. This statement has always felt so wild to me. But what is greater, right? That we would forgive in the face of resentment. 
that we would work towards systems of life rather than systems of death. You know, part of what this, the driving force of this passage is embodiment, that Jesus is embodying the very nature of who God is. And when he offers us this hospitality, this space, when he invites us into the freedom of his obedience, he's inviting us into the ethic of love. Let me close with Galatians chapter 5, a passage that I think gives us some direction for what freedom can be. That we would not make the mistake of defining freedom as having endless possibilities. But rather that we would see that freedom has a direction. Verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5 Paul says, for you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another in love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for what you offer us. Thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit. That we are now invited into this space where we can experience this ethic of love, not just know it. That we would realize, God, that not all knowledge transform. And part of the knowledge you're inviting us into is that of one of experience. That you invite us into freedom. Freedom from the things that have held us bondage. The fears. The hurtful experiences that have shaped us. That now, God, you're inviting us to live out of new experiences, freed experiences. And that we're empowered, empowered to live embodied lives, lives of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Lead us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.